Hey everybody, Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development, and it's our privilege to have Dr. Bapon with us, an expert in climate change and disaster response and many, many things. So Dr. Bapon, <laughs> great to have you with us. Thank you so much, Craig. Thanks for the invitation. You're very, very welcome. And the, and the great thing is we're both actually in New Zealand and most people I talk to are all over the world in different time zones. So it's great we can be in the morning in New Zealand chatting together. Why don't you tell us about your experiences with crisis uh, response and disaster response, climate change? How did you become interested in this? Well, that's a, that could be a long story and I can talk actually more than half an hour if you want me to <laughs> talk on that. Uh, being uh, born and brought up in a country like Bangladesh, which is actually quite disaster prone, and also a lot of people when I saw when I was childhood uh, losing their life and livelihood due to natural hazard. So that was a passion actually to do something in this particular area. How can actually I help to the society or community? And that was the passion actually leads me to getting an engineering degree and being an engineer actually. I thought actually, why not I do something different rather than a design and just a structural activities. So I, I literally switched my background to operational hydrologist to helping the country more on the flood forecasting things, how we can actually produce some long lead flood forecasting for advanced early warning system. And I think that become the start of the journey on the emergency response or emergency management area. And that's leads to me to become where I am now. And from Bangladesh to national to the regional platform like Thailand, I moved and then from there to US. And then there are many, many countries. I work more than 25 countries and moved to New Zealand in 2015. Um, after this um, Christchurch Canterbury earthquake, uh, mm. there was an offer here to helping the country to more on the Flood, um, extreme, um, increased flood vulnerabilities. And that's how become ended up here, become a Kiwi. And what were you doing in the United States? We had the chance to have a chat last week. You were working in the fire service or something? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I worked for quite a long time with uh, UCAR um, in NCAR, um, as well as with um, US fire service of, of forest service to um, support international work like an uh, incident command system for emergency management, which is more on the command, command and control system to support the Indian Ocean country uh, who actually suffered quite a lot on tsunami in 2004, uh, so that actually their emergency response people could work in a coordinated or multi-agency coordination um, enhancement with military, fire, police, as well as a disaster risk reduction or disaster emergency response agency. So it was helping them understand the incident command system so they could put that into place? Yes, that's right. So most of the time you'll see actually our disaster management system or NDMO or civil defense, they're not actually talk in Asia on command and control structure, but when there is a any disaster happen, you see most of the time police fire as well as um, armed force, they actually jump in to help. And then if you don't actually talk in a common language, that's quite complex. And when there is a ongoing disaster, it's, it's actually quite chaotic event. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone is busy. Everyone is actually need to quite work in a quite standardized format. And that's how we actually thought, why not actually we 
Ukraine, um, civil defense, as well as other interagencies so that they could actually jump in and talk in one single language. And also how we can actually enhance the regional cooperation. Because if you look at an ASEAN or a SARC, uh, country need to help countries. You cannot just uh, wait for someone from Australia, someone from US actually could jump and come mm -hmm. to help you. So rather actually how Thailand can help Cambodia or Myanmar can help, Bangladesh can help Myanmar. Um, right. That's kind of a mechanism we try to set up for that process. So with that mechanism, did you identify what the assets were, strengths and weaknesses in each of the countries so they could see how they could help each other? Yeah, so it's sort of like, like a roadmap we try to create, uh, starting with mm. the baseline assessment on their emergency response capability, mm -hmm. what are the assets they have, or equipment they have, what is their awareness as well as capacity building activities and how actually, what are the processes need to be maintained to work in a multi-agency coordination. Um, as you can see, uh, especially on the emergency response area, the police, fire, uh, civil defense and armed force, they're actually quite silos, even though they're actually one single organization or one single actually motivation uh, to national security, saving people's life. But there are actually quite less coordination between them on many aspects because of their agency and interagency mandate and other activities. And I think that was the perspective that actually how we can look at everything into all hazard perspectives. So you just not look at natural hazard, you look at actually national security uh, so that you're looking at terrorism. Pandemic actually gives quite good example for countries that why it's necessary a multi-agency coordination but it took so, us quite a long time i can imagine so excuse my ignorance but when you train in for example southeast asia and you develop a coordinated command system and you said shared vocabulary or language so they understood they were saying the same things and they understood what those words meant was that translated into their own languages or was it in english uh, in some country, it uh, it translated into their own language. Like if you go to Sri Lanka, you'll see in mm -hmm. Shingalis as well as the English because there is a two prominent language they use. So everything has been translated into Singhalese, um, so that actually the common people or district and uh, provincial people actually they are able to understand and respond. Mm -hmm. In India, if you go to India, they they are actually quite advanced in Southeast Asia. They teach the ICS course into their uh, um, civilian or like uh, their government academic courses. It's in English, but there is mm -hmm. also a local uh, Indian lang language Hindi in Hindi that has mm -hmm. been translated. Uh, in Bangladesh, okay. it also translated in Bangla, um, but also it's in English. So both languages there. Uh, we implemented in Iran, everything has been in Farsi. So obviously in Iran, English is not a major language. So everything needs to be translated into, into local language. Interesting. So your expertise is in climate and in multi-hazard risk assessment, disaster preparedness. What really interests you about these particular areas? And why don't you share some new developments in that area as well? Oh, Right now, so I'm working quite a couple of interesting projects or I try to move a little bit on the emerging area because as I said that COVID actually gives you a quite good understanding that 
um, especially one in the emergency response area that your SOP or standard operation procedure or con contingency plan or business continuity plan, it's need to be very dynamic. We had a quite culture how static it should be, or it should be a static, a one single document you follow for all around the year, unless it needs to be changed or it fails, you actually start uh, looking at its revision. Uh, but the dynamic nature of, you know, catastrophe, dynamic nature of disaster, it gives you a quite good understanding that why it need to be happen. And that's what actually be, before just when the pandemic happened last year, uh, on March actually published this research. And that has been quite widely um, circulated by the UN. And it has been quite widely supported and, and um, encouraged and um, adopted by many countries. We also do a couple of work on integration between disaster risk reduction and climate change. And here is the another interesting part, like when you look at the climate change um, adaptation area, as well as you look at the disaster risk reduction area, these also two separate entity, and they actually quite works silos in many countries, including ours here in New Zealand. So, but at the end of the day, it's actually a common problem because a climate change creating a hazard and how we actually look at the hazard to reduce. And that's that's one of the things we try to work on, the coherence of disaster risk reduction and climate change. And then thirdly, um, one of my core expertise, which I'm working last 18 years to helping countries to setting up a multi-hazard early warning or impact-based early warning system. So that actually country has a early warning rather than a late warning and they're able to um, get informed what are the foreseeable risk or whatever the foreseeable has a threat there that's coming to the country and how they're able to prepare for their response and making sure that there is an evacuation order in place, the shelter is in place, shelter is mm -hmm. safe, people able to evacuate, people understand what they need to do, how to save their asset and where to move. So that, that's um, most of the activities I'm supporting in most vulnerable people in the in the world, basically. Yeah. It's a couple of countries in Africa, so we supported in Benin, Sudan, Somalia. Um, we are supporting in Caribbean, like Antigua, Bermuda, um, Guyana, Grenada, Barbados, Jamaica, and then most of the Pacific here in New Zealand because they are quite new. Near to us, it's easy to work with them. We understand their culture, we understand their context. We have a lot of data on them, so it's quite help, easy to help them. Tell us about climate change, climate change adapt, adaption, and what that means in terms of different emergencies or things becoming more extreme. Tell us about that. Well, when you're looking at the climate change risk assessment, even you maybe saw one, uh, New Zealand is quite forefront to developing their climate change risk assessment framework, which I was part of the panel member. Uh, then in last year, we actually published the National Climate Change Risk Assessment, which is our team in Tonkin and Taylor actually did the National Climate Change Risk Assessment. And so if you look at the Climate Change Risk Assessment, we are often actually talking about what is going to happen in next 20 years, next 30 years, and next 50 years or 100 years. Is that right? 
So whenever there is a climate change, you're actually looking at long horizon. Mm. Again, you're looking at the extreme weather event, like flooding, flash flood, or cyclone that are happening on a regular basis. We are talking about this is happening because due to climate change. And that's where you see the last two weeks, people are actually gathering in Glasgow in COP26, um, fighting about how we can actually reduce our emission, how we actually reduce our temperature, all sort of things. But what I was saying that this weather, which is actually the extreme weather event, which happened actually in the short term frame, right? It's, it could happen tomorrow, it could happen today, it could happen after five days, it could happen after 10 days or 20 days. So we're actually missing this big part of major important things, which is a short range or medium range or seasonal forecast that are available, how that are actually linked to the climate change and how that actually impacting our overall uh, weather and climate system or overall risk assessment for our organization as an individual, as a society or as a country. Uh, you look at the, all these um, national climate change risk assessment or we have a TCFD like Task Force for Climate Change Disclosure. They are often actually not talking about extreme weather how actually that impacting the climate change. But that's quite a huge risk for an organization, for a business, for an insurance industry. So we actually need to work together on a seamless integration between the weather and climate change. But obviously that's a challenging task when you try to look at your weather, which is quite uncertain because you're saying, you, you're receiving the information from mid-service, what is happening tomorrow you see tomorrow is completely different. If, that's, if they said rains, it may be completely dry, or if they said dry, it may be completely wet. So those are some of the uncertainty there because based on various um, geographical area, but even though there are actually some opportunity to how actually we use those information for our decision-making, as well as understanding the tendency of future climate change how that's moving forward. Papon, you mentioned flash floods. Are there other extreme weather events that are increasing in maybe their frequency or the impact due to climate change? Yes, so we always say oh, hydrometeorological hazard, which is flooding, cyclones or a storm. Uh, there could be erosion, um, uh, then drought, which is like a, no water. So these are actually getting quite acute and prominent. And we can see actually quite more and more this, um, the, the high frequency, uh, these are the event is happening. If you look at it, especially on 2021, uh, you saw the flash, flash flood in New Zealand. Um, you saw the major flooding in Germany, which is maybe everyone remember because killed quite a large number of population. So there are actually quite a lot of number of this flash flood, which is actually in a short period of time, you're receiving a huge amount of rainfall. And most of the cases, um, our urban system doesn't have that much of drainage capability to you know, absorb those amount of water. And right. that creates some country they're saying flash floods, some country they're saying uh, urban flooding or it could be river and or terrestrial flooding. So there are uh, various names on it. 
That's a bit of a concern, isn't it? And I've I've asked some of the experts about this. Is there are weather events and the language that we're using, the the lexicon, the taxonomy, uh, the vocabulary that we're using is different in different places around the world. Um, and between the scientists and the people that talk about the weather, and then the regular public like myself there's a bit of a disconnection between the words actually making sense and helping me as a regular person understand, okay, this is going to be bad and I should respond to it and prepare in a certain way. So do, is there any work happening at the moment, particularly in the scientific community, to come up with a new way of communicating what's happening? I'm glad that you, you raised this thing. So since 2013, uh, we are working on... As, to solving this problem because you know the terminology and definition of hazard. So there was a first work has been done by Susan Carter uh, from um, USA through there is an organization called IRDR, so Integrated Disaster Risk Reduction uh, Research, which is funded by International Science Council. I'm also one of the science committee member and currently chairing the um, data working group. And from the data working group, we published a hazard definition in 2013. And that has been replaced by last year uh, through IRDR as well as UNDRR, which has been led by Professor Virginia Modi from Public Health England uh, to again come up with a revised document on hazard definition and terminology. And this year, we actually published quite detail, so the, which uh, not only just terminology, but also how you define and what are the detail on what does it has it means where you can get sudden technical help. So I would highly recommend to look at the hazard terminology and definition by UNDRR. If you search it by Google, you'll find two documents. One is the fundamental document on the definition. And the second one is actually detail on the hazard definition and terminology. Now I think that would be quite helpful for not only for scientific people, but also for any people who is interested in working under this field to a little bit better understand that what does a flash flood means to people? What does a terrestrial flood means to mm. people? Why it's happened? Where it could happen? How you can actually solve this? And who are your technical expertise that you can actually find to help you? Mm. You mentioned um, early warning systems. Can you tell us about some new advances or interesting ways that um, early warning systems are being created in different regions? I can imagine in New Zealand, our early warning system might look different than in Africa or the Caribbean, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, so from the from the beginning of my career, I actually try to look at more on the people-centered early warning system. So if you look at in the mm. little bit on the history, so 1980s or 1990s, our warning was quite focused on how we can actually only save the people lives. And then if you look at the 1990 or 2000, it come up with a little bit more on the people-centered early warning system. So that actually how we can actually not only save lives, but also saving their livelihood, because that's quite important. Mm. Because it, and, and also there was quite challenging at that time in 2000 to 2010, if we just look at one decade. Uh, the technological advancement, because um, you need to have a quite advanced research to increase the lead time of a forecasting, because each individual or sector has a differential 
warning needs as a as a human being or as a person to prepare i may need actually one day to prepare my asset or just putting into safe location for the agriculture people they may need actually seven days or ten days because they have a crops in the field they need to harvest right. those things or they need to plant those crops if you go to the fishermen they may need to catch if they have a pond or where they actually do the culture fish so so looking at those kind of aspect my intention was actually how we can actually increase the reliable lead time for the forecast so instead of one day how we can actually produce a five day for cyclone how we can actually produce for uh, 10 days for flood forecasting and how we can actually come up with a people centered which is like a need based forecasting system because we often actually look at top down so you have a warning from the national med service and you said okay this is your forecast for tomorrow that there will be a 250 ml rainfall and as a person i don't understand what does it means to me because i'm not interested about a 2 meter or 1 meter i am interested actually when the flood is coming to my house mm-hmm. when i need to evacuate and when mm-hmm. i can actually come back to live again to my normal life right so mm-hmm. this is a three fundamental information they are looking for and my work was mostly driven to how we actually produce this three fundamental information for our community so that they can save their life they can save their livelihood and they actually build trust on it mm. and one of the problem with the top down early warning system is that you don't have a credentiality because people doesn't understand and when a human being doesn't understand a information they actually don't don't rely on it even they don't listen to it if i just tell you there's some information which you don't buy from me obviously you're not listening right so yeah. so that that's the thing happen and that's where actually we try to put more emphasis that go to the community sit with them try to understand their problem once you understand the problem you go to the toolbox or catalog because you go to the library there are so many books right so you actually pick up the books which author you like or which topics you like and what actually interests to you is same things happen for early warning systems we understand the problem and then we try to look at actually where we can find a solution and then we bring the solution to test it um we recently helping in new zealand especially on the greater wellington regional council that how they can actually develop a more impact based multi-asset early warning system mm. I think that education for the general public knowing when it's coming when I need to leave and when I can come back means people can plan as much as you can for um you know an extreme weather event often when we're thinking do we go to the beach and have some relaxing time at the beach we look at the weather forecast and it says 70% and I always thought that that was a 70% chance of rain but my daughter told me it means no it means 70% of the land area that that weather report is talking about could be receiving rain and so i think that the the education for the public on what these words mean that are being used by the weather forecasters or the scientific community is really really important do you know of any education campaigns underway around the with the world at the moment Yeah, there, there, you'll find there are actually so many uh, capacity building activities are there. Um, you you can go to the Met um, Met desk by UCAR and NCAR. They actually provide quite substantial amount of um, um, capacity building on 
every um, element of early warning system. So we developed a 10 essential element that need to be um, set up for a end-to-end -end early warning system, which is a start with your policy, your institutional development, your modeling capability, your forecasting, your warning translation, and then risk communication. So where actually you just raised this one that how actually we ensure a risk knowledge and then how that risk knowledge could be transferred to the community to better understand. And that's that's become another big framework. You can actually look at a article me and Helen Clark wrote actually last year on uh, should I stay or should I go? And that paper actually come up with a small um, a diagram that your risk communication is link up with multiple element on first of all understanding your risk assessment understanding your risk knowledge understanding your risk perception because if you don't have a perception you actually don't rely on it and then how actually you do the trans translate the risk and then you do, do the treatment of risk and these are all actually a big chunk of element people who works in media people who works on the communication it's a, it's, a, it's a big topics for them and I, obviously i'm not mm. the not the I, I i learned from them but i don't say i'm the expert on the communication side but these are like there are actually quite good module and capacity building activities which people can actually learn from them upon just as we as we finish up what's the best way for people to reach out to you communicate with you learn about what you're doing well, I'm quite quite um, active and receptive to support any community or anyone actually who wants to know more uh, about this uh, disaster risk reduction and climate change in the subject area. I teach part-time in Auckland University. I supervise many students in multiple universities throughout the globe. Um, so reach out to me through LinkedIn, through my webpage or Twitter, because nowadays Social media is fascinating. You know, you, you want to find someone, Google them, you'll find them easily. And send an email. Um, I normally respond quite um, quickly in the email. So happy to help if anyone actually needs some of my knowledge or someone actually wants to help their community. There's always, always room to support. Thank you very much for giving us your time today. I do appreciate it. Thank you, Craig, for inviting. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And let's catch up with a cup of coffee sometimes as we are in the same city, <laughs> same time zone. Sounds great to do that in person. And for everybody yeah. else, uh, and for our students particularly, who are watching the recording, uh, Bapon's link to LinkedIn is in the show notes directly underneath this video on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and on YouTube. And for those of you that are emergency responders or you work in disaster preparedness, uh, if you are like most emergency managers, you have a big folder full of training and certifications and courses that you've attended, but often they don't line up with an academic qualification. So we've built our bachelor and our master's program in emergency management, specifically for professional emergency managers. We've designed our new way of delivering the program so that you can do it anywhere, anytime and gain credit for the training that you've done in the industry. So do reach out to us at uard.ac.nz uard.org would love to help you reach your career goals with a real qualification so thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you again soon